if you're just now joining us, that's a very small book that's uh, maybe unfamiliar to uh, a lot of us. Just go to the very back of your Bibles, turn back, turn back a few pages. It's the next to last book. Um, very short. It's only uh, probably only takes up about a couple pages there in your Bibles. Uh, this morning, uh, I I took um, I took a little bit of pastoral privilege on this on this text. So in your bulletins, it is Jude 11 through 16. Friday, as I was kind of finishing up my sermon, I, I, I decided that I just could not do justice to verses 14 and 16, along with verses 11 through 13. So I decided to split this up into two different parts. And so today we're going to do part one. So we're going to read and study together Jude 11 through 13. Jude 11 through 13. So before I read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, let us go to him in a word of prayer, asking that his blessing might be added to our time together. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the darkness of your sin, but you, you have given us the light of your word that shines into the darkness, and the darkness has no chance of overcoming it. Father, we'd ask that you would remember that promise that you have made to us, that you would not allow darkness to remain in our minds and remain in our hearts, but that your word might shine into it and eliminate it and kill all of it for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of our souls, and for the sake of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who purchased us by his own blood. Would you do this for us, please? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So hear now the word of God, Jude, verses 11 through 13. Woe to them, these are the false teachers. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Amen. So if you come out to the manse, as many of you have, you'll go into our backyard and you'll see a little wooden playhouse that uh, uh, Matt got for Christmas some years ago. It took me forever and a day to actually put that thing together. Well, it's no longer considered a, a playhouse. It is now a pizza shop where Mac makes his pizza. And he even has come up with a little kind of branding marketing tagline. And you can, you can ask him this. He'll tell you, I make the best pizza every day. And he's very proud of it. But here's the thing. Is it the best pizza? Well, it's made out of wood. The pepperoni is wood. The peppers are wood. And his secret ingredient is fake butter, and real dirt. It's not the best pizza. That is what we would call, this is coming back from my business school days, this is what we would call a safe promise. Safe promises are not safe because they're easy to keep. They're called safe because they're easy to break. If you make a promise like a two-year-old saying this is the best pizza you'll ever eat and you eat it and it's not actually the best pizza you've ever eaten, it's actually kind of terrible, no one's really going to get their feelings hurt about that. You can make the promise, 
And if you break the promise, everybody's pretty quick to forget it. You don't really have to worry about unsafe promises. Pretty much every day where I'm at work, I make my wife a promise I'll be home right around 5. And I think, what, maybe two days since I've been here, I've actually been here, I've actually been home at 5. I'm usually running about 10 or 15 minutes late, and so far, she hasn't called a divorce attorney. That is a safe promise. But five years ago, I made a very unsafe promise to her that I would love her and that I would be faithful to her. Now, that's not unsafe because I'm planning on breaking that covenant. I work very hard to keep that covenant. But I work very hard to keep that covenant because I know that if I break that covenant, if I break my word, if I fail to love her and I fail to be faithful to her, that is going to cause her a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, and a lot of devastation. And I know that it will, because if she breaks her covenant with me, it's going to cause me to be devastated. That is the definition of an unsafe promise. An unsafe promise is a promise that, if it is broken, causes damage. And in many cases, irreparable damage. As we come to this text today, Jude is introducing us to a group of people, these false teachers, who are full of these unsafe but empty promises. They're all making high promises about how you can be happy, how you can have joy, and how you can have life, but what they're actually bringing you is death. And he's warning us to be on our God. Do not trust them. Beware of their character. Beware of their natures because they do not have your good in, uh, in mind. They come promising life, but they will bring you hurt, pain, and guilt. Jude here is giving us perhaps one of the most beautifully worded yet critical exhortations in the whole of Scripture. Do not believe false teachers. They are greedy, dangerous, and they are destined for destruction. And those are our three points today. The greedy, false teachers, their dangerous teaching, and their destination, which is destruction. Let's begin by looking at their greed. Jude begins here by giving us three different historical examples to use to compare these false teachers to. He begins first with Cain. You know the story of Cain. He was the he, uh, he was he was the brother of Abel, born of Adam and Eve. He made sacrifices to God that God rejected. Now I don't know if you're like me, but when I grew up, I always thought that the reason that God rejected the offerings of Cain was because well, Abel was making his sacrifices with animals, which were better than the kind of vegetables and fruits and grain that Cain was making. But when you keep reading through your Bible, as you get to the book of Leviticus, you realize that there's a whole class of offerings that were called grain offerings. And the idea was, if you were like particularly paying your tithe, paying for the first fruits of your labor, if you didn't raise sheep, cattle, or goats, you just took the first fruit of whatever you grew, grain, wheat, something like that, and you would bring it to the temple, and it would be offered up to the Lord. And the same description is used for both animal and grain sacrifices. It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So it wasn't what he was offering. It was how he was offering. He was greedy in his heart. But what was he greedy for? 
He was greedy for the praise of God. We, know we should be jealous for us praising God. That's not, what, that's not what Cain was greedy for. He wanted the praise. He saw Abel offering up these offering up these sacrifices from his heart because he loved God. And he saw God blessing his brother. And he's like, well, that's, that's not fair. I deserve that. I deserve that blessing. He doesn't deserve it. So he becomes greedy. He becomes jealous for praise. The next guy that we're told of is going to be Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. But he wasn't a prophet of God. He was a prophet of money. He was a prophet who went to the highest bidder. He would sacrifice truth. He would sacrifice the revelation of God for the sake of just a few dollars, for the sake of a little bit of gold, the sake of a little bit of wealth. He was greedy for wealth. And then that third example that we have is Korah. Korah was an Israelite who became jealous and greedy, not for wealth or praise, but he became jealous for power. You see, in the book of Exodus, God comes to Moses and he tells Moses that among all of the people of Israel, of all the tribes of Israel, the religious power in the nation went to the Levites. Not to, not to, the, not to, not to the tribe of Judah, not to the tribe of, of, of anybody else, but to the tribe of the Levites. And Korah comes up and says, that's not fair. That's not fair. Who are you, Moses, to set the Levites aside for some special purpose? I need the power. So he rises up in rebellion. And then what is the result of that? God causes the ground to open up from under him and all those who are with him, and they are all swallowed up into destruction. These are the examples of these greedy, 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 greedy Old Testament characters. And this is an awful lot like the false teachers in the days of Jude. Korah was greedy for power. Balaam was greedy for wealth. And Cain was greedy for praise. False teaching can get the pastor all of those things. And here's the thing. All of those things are desirous. Praise is desirous. Wealth is desirous. Power is desirous. And by teaching falsely, a pastor can keep for himself all of those things if he does not adhere to the word of God. If I won't, but if you're standing on the bow of the boat, look out there on the water, it does all fine and good, but just beneath the surface, just above, just below the line of the water, there are reefs, there are depths, there are shipwrecks. There are reefs at your love feast. By love feast, I don't think this is referring to the Lord's Supper. I think this is referring to in your own household. I think this is speaking of hospitality. Sitting, sitting at your, sitting at your table, are hidden reefs. These false teachers are not the ones outside. They're the ones inside. And he's telling us to be careful because a hidden reef will sink your ship. But a hidden heretic sinks your faith. Be very, very careful. They promise life, but they bring death. They promise salvation, but they bring condemnation. Now, I don't want you to think that Jude has encouraged us to be suspicious of everyone that we share a table with. To like, oh well, I don't know that person very well, so I'm not going to invite them into, the, into our home. That is not what we're. That's not what Jude is saying. The word of God is clear. We are commanded, not asked to, but commanded, to be kind 
and loving and hospitable to everyone, both those inside the household of faith and those outside of the household of faith, particularly those who take the name of Christian. We're to judge with a certain amount of charity, but the principle that Jude is driving at here is this. Keep watch over your household. Keep watch over the household of faith, your church families, because danger is always just beneath the surface. Be kind. Be caring. Be compassionate. But don't be foolish. Keep a watch over yourselves. And you don't have to go very far to find it either, even as you're sitting here. Now, don't look next to you. Don't look in front of you. That's not what I'm talking about. If you want to find the closest false teacher in this room and probably in this world, look in your pocket or look in your purse. It's your phone. I don't know if you know what the Babylon Bee is. Uh, If you don't, look it up. They're really good. It's a Christian satirical site. They wrote an article the other day. This This is the tagline of the article. It says, We need to protect our kids from inappropriate teaching on sex. Say parents who let their kids have a smartphone. That's funny, but man, is there a ring of truth to that. We get all bent out of shape about what people are teaching our kids in school. And by the way, this is not going to make me popular among the young people today. But we get all bent out of shape about what teachers are teaching our kids in their schools not realizing that they are walking around not just with a false teacher in their pockets, but a teacher who will graphically illustrate the evil and the wickedness and the false teaching that they are trying to pump onto our children and into ourselves. You don't have to go very far at all to find it. It's all around us. It's it's on our very person. Now, I, don't want, I want to make one thing clear. I do, I do not think that we need to build a bunker and keep our kids down there so that they never have to encounter false teaching. But what I do know is that, our, that, that to thrust our children into a type of situation without first equipping them with the tools to think critically about these things is like sending them in to battle a spiritual grizzly bear with a crazy straw. Are your children prepared for that? And we talk about being prepared like for college. No, no, no. Are they prepared to have that cell phone? Are they prepared to battle it? I, I remember talking to some students that I had once um, uh, to, the, to this class, and I told them and that I was absolutely, well, there's one thing I'm sure of, is that it would be safer for them to pick up smoking than to have unlimited and unsupervised access to a smartphone 24-7. Now, I'm not telling you how to raise your children. But I am begging you, think and pray very carefully about these things. There are plenty of helps when it comes to this. Covenant eyes, accountable to you, that can help you shepherd your children and yourself because a teacher can only do so much in the classroom. A teacher might be able to stand up in a college or a high school classroom and rail against Christianity and traditional sexual morality and get nowhere with your children, but where teaching fails, temptation can and often does succeed. Be wary of that temptation. As as John Owen says, 
do not enter into temptation. You cannot avoid temptation, but do not enter into it. And when you have that temptation on you 24-7, it is always there, and it is always tempting. It is always whispering in your ear. Sexual pornographic addiction works about the same as any other addiction. The soft, run-of-the-mill things might be fine for a while, but soon the person realizes, hey, this doesn't really do it for me anymore. I think I'll try something different. Maybe I'll try something a bit more taboo. And then down the rabbit hole, hole they go, following the clouds that promise rain all the way to the grave, believing the dead promises of twice-dead teachers. As Jude's brother, Jesus Christ, says, Woe to anyone who would harm one of these little ones, for it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and to be thrown into the sea. He's not talking about physical harm there. He's talking about those who would leave, lead our children into the ways of darkness and deceit and those dangerous promises. That is a woe upon the false teachers. And so we need to listen to that. We need to hear that. We need to take that seriously. Are we, maybe not, and I'm sure, not on purpose, but are we accidentally or maybe naively leading our children down a path that leads to the same fate as Korah? the destruction of the soul, the destruction of the body. These are dangerous, dangerous things because there is judgment waiting at the end of it. And this is our last point. Jude gives a couple more illustrations there in verse 13. He says that the false teachers are like wild waves. Waves in the Old Testament were symbols of judgment. And judgment is spoken of often in terms of the chaotic waters in Genesis 1, the tohu wavohu the formless void. It's this idea that, that, like, that like judgment and torment is not just of the body, but it's just, it's like the, it's like, it's just chaos. It's like the, um, um, oh man, what is it called? The uh, something zone, that old TV show. What is it called? Somebody tell me. Twilight Zone, yeah. Where just, you're just kind of thrust into chaos. Where things just don't make sense. We think of like hell as being fire and brimstone and the devil with a pointy, you know, pitchfork. But it's so much more than that. It is confusion. It is a torment of mind. This is what the false teachers are driving at. Chaos. They're like wandering stars. Once again, I think he's drawing the imagery of, of, of sailing. When you, when you sailed in the ancient world, you, you, you navigated by the stars. Well, not all the stars are fixed, are they? There are planets that move across the sky. If you lock onto one of those, it's not a fixed point. Who knows where you'll end up? These are what the false teachers are doing. Wandering stars leading into destruction. And that destruction is judgment. So how are we to continue to contend for the faith and to be saved from the judgment of a holy God? Let me give you a couple of fixed points, fixed stars to guide you. First, look to the word of God. In order for a lie to flourish, the truth must first be put into doubt. Look to the Word of God. For the past several hundred years, the Bible 
has been Satan's chief target in his battle against the church and the battle against Christ. Philosophers, really since about the 1800s, have done almost nothing other than try to convince people that their Bibles are not reliable and not worth trusting in. The belief that God is dead, and that if he is dead, his word is dead. They've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. But you know what still remains? The word of God. My former pastor, Joe Steele, put it this way. I can't remember if he was quoting somebody or not, but I think it hits the nail on the head. The word of God has a strange habit about living its pallbearers. The word of God has a strange habit of outliving its pallbearers. All those critical theorists, they're dead and they're gone. But you're still here sitting under the authoritative word of God. It does not change. How do you defend the word of God? You don't defend it. You stand firm upon it. As Charles Spurgeon said, we defend the word of God in the same way that we would defend a lion. Simply let it loose and it will defend itself. Stand firm on the word of God. And lastly, look to the cross of Christ. I have been a wandering star myself. I have done things either intentionally or naively that have led many, many astray. We have led people away from the truth with our words and our work. And as many of us have been led astray by others and wonder how we'll ever find our way back, or better yet, what we will receive from God if we ever come back to him. This is what Satan does. First of all, he says, hey, do this. And then when you do it and you feel guilty about it, he's like, well, don't run back to God. I mean, he's the one that's going to condemn you. He's the one that's going to judge you. You might as well just stay in it. That is a lie. Christ did not come despite sin. He came for sin. He did not come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick. He did not come for the righteous. He came for the sake of sinners. If Satan comes to you and says, you're a sinner not worthy of God, he's just telling you of your qualifications to come to Jesus Christ. In order to come to Christ, you need a knowledge of your sin. Be like Luther. Thank him for reminding you of your sin. Thank him for driving you back to the cross of Christ because you should have never left it in the first place. Cling to Christ. That way when Satan comes to you screaming condemnation, you can say confidently and calmly to him, if I stand condemned, then why, oh why, is the tomb empty? Paul says that Christ was resurrected for our justification. It means a lot by that. But one thing I want to press to your mind. You are justified in your believing. I can say, well, I died for your sin. Your sins are forgiven. How do you know I'm telling the truth? How do you know that Christ was telling the truth? When he said from the cross, it is finished. The tomb is empty. Satan, show me a body. If you show me a body, I'll believe you. But until you can produce that body, I cannot believe you. Until you produce that body, I will continue to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because that is a sure and certain promise. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the grace of your word and for the grace of the gospel. 
Father, would you write it upon our hearts this, this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.